This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Graham Norton Radio Show. How exciting is this? With Waitrose. Over on Virgin Radio. Up and Adam, come on, things to do. Don't cheer, you'll just embarrass yourselves. We're not bored of it yet, so it's lovely. There's no stopping them. No stopping them. The Graham Norton Radio Show. Oh, there's nothing nicer, is there? Nothing nicer. With Waitrose. Food to feel good about. I mean, what's not to like? Saturday and Sunday from 9.30. Over on Virgin Radio. Welcome to the show. Vassos is here. Hello, her. And Rachel's here. Greetings. And very soon, Peter T is going to be here. Now, you may never have heard of him. You may have heard of him. He's this super, super duper longevity expert. So he spent his whole life up till now trying to figure out how to live longer. How can we live longer? The science of living longer. Living living longer. How do you, how do you turn it into science? Longology. Living longology. Mm-hmm. Longology. Longevity. In no, I know, I know, but I was just trying to have fun with it. Thanks. Um, and he came on the show and he gave us half an hour of that juice and it was unbelievable. So Peter Atia mm. on today's podcast. Vassos, please don't blow this one. Our next guest could <laughs> add years to your life. Sorry, that's wrong. Our next guest will add years to your life. He's a longevity expert who's rethinking medicine to help us live better, longer. His book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity, is out now. So let's sit up, concentrate, smile and never shed a Dr. Peter Atia. Yes, good morning, Peter. Good, good morning, Chris and team. Thank Welcome you for having me. Welcome to the show. Oh, my goodness me. I know you're a massive fan of motorsport. You love Formula One. You're never off your simulator at home i thought you were here for the grand prix no i i I contemplated it but instead we came in for goodwood a week later so okay so my my son and i he's 14 he's now forgotten more about motorsport than i've ever known and i knew quite a bit for a while um i said to him i said uh silverstone or goodwood but you can't have both he too has chosen goodwood so we'll see you there sunday perfect can't wait okay what are you hoping to get up to at the festival of speed uh, I mean, again, looking forward to seeing Sebastian Vettel driving the MP48. Who's a mate? Yes. How did you get? How did you become friends with him? Uh, we met at uh, Coda, which is the Formula One race in Austin, where I live. Uh, maybe five years ago. Right. And uh, yeah, have become good buddies. Are you any good on the old simulator? Uh, I am okay, but I'll tell you a funny story. One day, Seb came over and sat in my simulator, and within about five laps, was going six tenths quicker at Suzuka than I had ever gone in my life while his son was sitting on his lap. Yeah, with a glass of wine in one hand, I would imagine, <laughs> and a copy of the LA Times in another yeah. hand. Wow. So Peter's written this book. Peter, I've been banging on about this book for three and a half hours. Um, Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity by Dr. Peter Tier, who's sitting in front of me now. I can't quite believe it. I've been a fan of his for years. I bought this book a couple of months ago in my local bookshop, and now we're on the... P- it's a bit of a PR thing, but Peter is on holiday with his family, and he's just agreed to do... Our show it's the only radio show he's doing so let's get straight into it peter let's have some fun let's get into it let's inspire people let's energize people so beware the marginal decade and bring on the bonus decades discuss well um you know it's not a it's not a topic i think that people want to 
to contemplate uh, this idea of the marginal decade, which is just the way I refer to the last decade of your life. Um, but the truth of it is every one of us will have a final decade of his or her life. And I think the way I see it, you have two choices. You can sort of ignore that fact and just let it happen to you, or you can be very deliberate about it and acknowledge that you're going to have this final decade. What can you do to make it the best possible version of that decade, physically, uh, mentally, emotionally? Okay, and this um, lends itself to the centurion decathlon. So tell us about that. So let's let's have some headlines, and then we'll get into the weeds. Yeah. So, I mean, none of us may end up becoming centenarians, which are people who live to be a hundred or longer. That's a very rare group of people. Uh, and again, I have no delusions that I'm going to be one of them. I, I certainly doubt it. But this idea of a centenarian decathlon became kind of a mental model to think about having something to train for. So I know you're a runner, Chris, and um, I would imagine that every time you're getting ready to run the London Marathon, you are deliberate in how you prepare for it. And that's very different from just waking up every day to exercise for the sake of exercising. And I think if you look at the best performers in athletics, you will notice just that. There's great specificity to how they train. And yet I think while everybody understands exercise is good for them, I think many people, once they get out of the age or period of their life of competitiveness, there isn't that specificity. And so the centenarian decathlon is an idea which says, what are the 10 or so most important things you want to be able to do in your marginal decade? And how do you begin to actually train for them? So you have a list of yours, um, and there can be more than 10. There doesn't have to of be course. 10. There can be fewer than 10. So give us a flavor of what they might be. So when I think about the last decade of my life, I know that I want to be able to sit on the floor for 20 minutes with ease and get up on my own power, which again, that sounds really crazy for a 50 year old to say that. But anyone who's watched someone in their mid 80s will realize that's actually a bit of a stretch. Um, I want to be able to walk. Uh, I said three miles, but call it five kilometers in an hour. Uh, I want to be able to get myself out of a swimming pool on my own without a ladder. I want to be able to, I do archery, so I want to be able to pull back on a 50-pound compound bow. I want to be able to drive a race car within about 5% of the time I can now. And remember, Paul Newman was doing this up until six months before he died. Um, so those are a few. I, I have many more, but but th that gives you a flavor for it. Yeah, wait, you talk about 30 pounds above your head. That's right. I want to be able to put a suitcase in an overhead bin in an airplane. Yeah, I mean, t you know, balancing on one leg to put a sock on and put a shoe on as well. Yep. It's also important, isn't it? Deadlift for 30 seconds, sorry, a dead hang for 30 seconds. Right. Things like that. So, so cool. And Because these are all things that are useful to us. So it's all right training for, or, or exercising for one thing or another. But if you have an intention, it's like when people go onto the driving range to play golf, you know, and they just hit hit their fine line. But if, they, if you aim for a flag, it gives you, it's a more intentional, pastime or intentional exercise we do know with 17 week training plans for the marathon for example that people become fitter than they've ever been before because they they have some accountability to themselves and also some public accountability because they're going to be on show and it's funny isn't it they then give themselves a rest after the marathon and sometimes they don't do it again which is fine and you know whatever the case may be for differing people but it's much easier to maintain something once you've achieved it than have to get back to it so maintenance is really important speak to that if you don't mind for a no bit. that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic point um and it's more true the more life goes on so um 
once you get to a certain age, probably by about the age of 60, it would take more than a year to put the muscle mass on that you would lose with two weeks of inactivity. So there's two lessons here, I think. One is the importance of not getting injured because injury is probably the most critical way in which people are forced into inactivity. But I think even for the non-injured and certainly for people at any age, one of the lessons is even if you're traveling, for example, you're on vacation, don't use it as an opportunity to be completely inactive. Don't say, well, I'm out of my routine. I don't have to do anything. Say, look, I'm out of my routine. I'll do something different, but I'll continue to be as active as possible so that I don't lose as much ground. Okay. So this is beautifully flavorsome and technical in general. We get a little bit more specific now. So what are the, th all things considered, you know, say hopefully we don't smoke, we don't drink too much, we don't eat too much processed food what are the four things that are coming to get us regardless well i mean you can't overstate the importance of exercise and i think a lot of people maybe will tend to say well what's more important you know cardio training or strength training and the truth of it is both um, of the of the big things that we have at our disposal to to kind of live the longest best life exercise probably plays a more important role than anything else um, but having significant muscle mass, being very strong, and having high cardiorespiratory fitness all have a greater positive impact on your lifespan and health span, i.e. how long you live and how well you live, than any negative thing you can think of would have the opposite. Yeah. To be more specific, everybody understands that smoking is going to shorten your life. Everybody understands that having type 2 diabetes is going to shorten your life. The amount that those shorten your life is less than the lengthening that comes from being very strong, having high muscle mass, and having great cardiorespiratory fitness. So um, if you look at exercise overall, so it's ec exercise is right up there. Nutrition, what we put inside our mouths, mm -hmm. whether it's hydration, nutrition, or, or whatever that may be. Uh, sleep, which is massive. And you talk about it, and it's been talked about before. I know you're a huge fan of uh, Dr. Matthew Walker, and he's been on your podcast. It's one of the longest podcasts you've ever done. He's been on this show a few times. What I love about, you talk about it differently. The Everything in this book is talked about differently. It's more accessible. It's a bit more technical, but it doesn't feel so heavy as a read. But you do feel a bit cleverer having read it, <laughs> which is important. And then right at the end of the book, when you least expect it, is this chapter on emotional health, emotional fitness, which I think lands so much more heavily because of the rest of the book before it. And I know that a lot of your mates, a lot of your mates who are also fans, uh, I'm not your mate, but I'm a fan. I'd love to be a mate one day. Um, they said, oh, you should have put it at the beginning. I disagree because I think it hits mm. so much harder at the end because I just wasn't expecting it. Um, you were a fan of living longer for a long time. You know, um, in many ways, if you make yourself your hobby, it's better for you and for everybody else around you. But as always, you can become over-obsessed with that. You became, by your own admission, over-obsessed about living longer. And this hit you like, a, like an express train. When and how? Well, I mean, I think there were several things going on. Um, and by the way, thank you for, for saying that. It's, uh, it, it still always remains a little bit... Uh, sort of difficult to talk about that last chapter. And um, it almost didn't make it into the book. I mean, truthfully, the publisher sort of thought, it's interesting, but it doesn't belong in this book. Maybe you could write another book about that at some point. Um, but I, 
but I do agree that it probably belonged here. And I think that you're right. This is where it belonged. Um, I think there were two things going on. And I think the, the, the biggest thing was, yes, on the one hand, I was hyper obsessed with, you know, like I think most people, if they stop to think about it, not wanting to die. I think the, the, the problem in my case was the, the reason for that, I think, smacked of a desperation that was probably born of knowing that I wasn't living the best life. And so I think subconsciously at a minimum, and maybe even sometimes consciously, there was a belief that said, look, you're really screwing up right now in your life. Um, the longer you live, the more time you might have to fix this, even though you're not going to fix it now. So it was very much uh, kicking the can down the road, putting my head in the sand. And um, I think I needed to confront all of that and realize that. Yeah, you were sort of like doing what a lot of people do when they fall into the trap of just earning more and more and more and more money. Um, because once they needed it, then they wanted it and still needed it a bit. Then they no longer need it. They don't want it, but they just can't break the habit of accruing more. And you were doing the same thing with time and health. Right. Same kind of issue, wasn't it, really? Um, and then you you went to various places that helped you out, and you're very candid about them in the book, and it's gripping reading. It really is, um, and very emotional. Um, and you then first up, you think, hang on, none of this is, matters if you're miserable. Um, and so how have you changed your mindset then with regards to what you've learned whilst in the middle of writing the book? I was a fan of yours anyhow, before you experienced these things that you talk about, thinking you're the most sorted human on the planet, but it just wasn't the case. Yeah, this book started in, I think, 2016, which of course was based on what I'd been thinking about for the previous, you know, five or six years. Yeah. And yeah, as, as you point out, I think the wheels are kind of coming off the bus in 2017, 2018, and even into 2020. And, um, you know, I think that um, what you said is exactly right. And it was something that um, a woman by the name of Esther Perel, uh, who's, who's a therapist of mine, uh, said, pointed an observation to me uh, almost exactly six years ago. I remember it was actually July of 2017. And she, she said, you know, it really, or she said something effective. Doesn't it seem ironic that you have such an obsession with helping people live longer, yourself included, um, yet you seem to show no interest whatsoever in being less miserable. Um, and although I didn't make any change at that moment, it, it always stuck with me. And of course, it became a very important part of this transition. Did you feel miserable? Yes, absolutely. Really? Oh, yeah. You talk about um, uh, being abroad, away overseas in the past when certain things at home are happening that are important. And there was some cognitive dissonance there as well. Was that all part of, were they all symptoms of the same thing, do you think? Yes, absolutely. What, what, what was that like? Well, the story I write about is, is a, you know, I think arguably one of the most shameful experiences of my life. Um, uh, at the time I lived in California, so that's where my family was. And this was uh, five weeks after the birth of my youngest son, um, who's actually named after uh, the, the greatest uh, Formula One driver of all time, Ayrton. And I was in New York, which is where I worked. So I was commuting between California and New York. And um, when he was five weeks old, he had uh, a very sudden cardiac arrest. Now, fortunately, it was witnessed by our nanny, 
who immediately brought this blue lifeless baby to my wife, who is a nurse practitioner. So she was immediately able to do CPR on him. And within a few minutes, as the paramedics are arriving, she's bringing him back to life. There's, you know, his eyes come back and his, you know, everything. So they would go on to spend, you know, a week in the hospital. But the unbelievable aspect of this is that I didn't come home. Um, and I was just completely emotionally detached, busy, you know, self-absorbed. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, even sort of trying to tell that story today, it's impossible to believe that I wouldn't have just immediately at her request, of course, just hopped on that plane and gone home that evening. Um, and she begged me and pleaded with me to come, but I wouldn't do it. And, you know, again, I think that's just, you know, that's the lowest example of, you know, what a husband or a father would do. Um, and of course I justified it to myself by saying, yes, but you're here to take care of your patients. You're being a good doctor. But the truth of it is that none of that's true. I mean, it was just feeding my ego and not wanting to be emotionally involved. Yeah. It's the emotion thing, isn't it? It's, it's the deep emotion. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the, uh, not being able to love yourself as a child, therefore not being able to love your own children because you don't really know that love or you've shut that love down. And you talk about that in the book as well, don't you? Oh my goodness, Peter. Um, So much, so much. Um, If we were to go and test ourselves, if we had an unlimited budget, so everyone Mm -hmm. the Euro, we have the Euro millions over here, Mm -hmm. the lottery, you have the the really big one, don't you, over in America? How how big is the lottery get here? I guess the biggest it's been, I think is 196 million pounds. Yours is like 2 billion, isn't it? Is it really that high? Yours is two billion, but you have to pay tax on it, so you only win one point three billion. Never mind, kind of everything. But if we if we had like an unlimited budget, yeah. what would unlimited budget first, and then um, limited budget second? If we could test ourselves for three things, what should we be testing for ourselves uh, ourselves for in Sniper's Alley between the ages of say forty and sixty? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think Chris, the first thing you'd want to do is if you were going to really be limited to three things, you'd want to get a really good sense of your family history to know what things might be of exposure. So for example, if you knew for, you know, example that your father, uncles, grandfathers had prostate cancer, you would really over index on doing more of a thorough examination. And if cost were no object, in addition to doing very standard things like PSA and looking at not just the PSA number, which by itself is not particularly helpful, but looking at the PSA density and the PSA velocity, you might say, look, I'm going to splurge on what's called a multiparametric MRI, which is really the gold standard for looking at the prostate. Similarly, if you're a woman and you have a family history of breast cancer, you would really index and say, look, not only am I going to get my mammogram, which is helpful for certain kinds of breast cancers, namely those that are calcified, but I'm also going to get this multiparametric MRI, which complements the the mammogram perfectly. If you knew, for example, that someone in your family history had colon cancer, or you were at risk of it because of inflammatory bowel disease or things like that, you would probably say, look, I'm going to make sure a colonoscopy is high on that list. Yeah. Um, that's, that's on your list. Yes. You've had three of those I, so far? I have, yes. Yeah. Um, I think there are a couple of blood tests that are relatively inexpensive and should be on the list for everybody. And I would hope that they wouldn't encroach on that top three list because they're relatively inexpensive. So everybody should know their ApoB and everybody what should- What is ApoB? ApoB is a blood test that uh, is explaining the concentration of what are called lipoproteins. These are the particles that carry cholesterol. And the ApoB lipoprotein is the one that causes heart disease. Okay. So the number, that ApoB number literally represents the concentration of 
bad actors in your blood that carry cholesterol into the artery wall. And cancer often gets the headlines quite rightly, um, but the red ribbon, as you refer to, as opposed to the pink ribbon, doesn't get as much, but it's the biggest killer. It absolutely is. What yeah. are the four biggest killers? In order, yeah. it would be heart disease and cerebrovascular disease, far and away number one, right. followed by cancer, followed by neurodegenerative disease. And it depends. Technically, you would also include chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in there as the fourth. Um, and the reason I don't spend a lot of time on that is that's ex that's almost exclusively associated with smoking. And in many ways, this analysis I'm putting out is for a non-smoking population because generally a smoking population doesn't come to this argument with the same passion of, hey, I I'm doing everything I can to live longer. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> stop, stop, stop smoking. And then, and, then we, and then we would sort of say, then the fourth would be these metabolic diseases of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, type two diabetes. Yeah, you had a wake up call with the old um, fatty liver disease because you thought- I didn't have fatty liver disease, but I was very insulin resistant. Sorry, no, I'm referring to the patient that oh, you- Oh, yes, yes. Do you remember, just, can you just recount that, that story? Sure, yeah. So today we know that fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is- very prevalent. And I'm sorry that I don't know the stats in the UK, but in the United States, it's well on pace to become the leading cause of liver transplantation. What it is, is fat accumulation in the liver that is not driven by alcohol. It looks the same. It looks though, the it? same. And yeah. the story you're referring to was uh, a little over 20 years ago when I was in my surgical training and we were operating on a patient. And this was actually right when I was a very junior doctor. So my job was to... Uh, what we call pre-op the patient, which means just learn a bit about his medical history. And one of the more important things you want to learn about a patient before you operate on him or her is how much alcohol they consume. Because someone who drinks a lot will have some complications with anesthesia and post-operatively. And you just need to know that so you can manage it medically. This patient said he didn't drink, so I left it at that. But when we opened him up to remove his cancerous colon, he looked like his liver was just a ball of fat. And, um, that was a bit of a wake-up call because, of course, the, the initial assumption was he had lied. Later realized, no, he had not lied at all. This was non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which even 22, 23 years ago when this happened was almost unheard of. In fact, I didn't really come to understand what this was until about 15 years ago. And with him, was it fizzy drinks with him? Uh, yeah, probably a lot of, lot of Coca-Cola. My goodness me, one has to be so careful. Um... Talk about medicine medicine 3.0. So so there's medicine 1.0. 2.0 is sort of where we're sort of in now. And 3.0 is where you want us to go, where you think we should go. Can you give us the headlines for that, please? Yep. So uh, for most of our human history, we, we lived in this world of medicine 1.0, which really wasn't medicine. Medicine 1.0 was you know, storytelling and looking at bad humors and trying to trying to make sense with the few tools we had, which didn't include the scientific method, trying to make sense of what was happening around us. Um, all of this changed quite remarkably, you know, about 150 years ago with basically three things. One was the elucidation of the scientific method. So this idea that you could observe something happening in the world, in nature, you could make a guess or a fancy word for that is a hypothesis about what that thing is. And then you could design an experiment to test it. We take that for granted today. That had to be invented. So you have the invention of that. You have the invention of the light microscope. And then you have the development of antimicrobial agents. And what was really remarkable about those things is that's transitioning us from medicine 1.0 to 2.0, the modern era of medicine. It's remarkable what an impact that had on our lifespan. So prior to that, 
the uh, expected human lifespan was about 38 to 40. Very short. People died, and they died of what I describe as fast death. So you were mostly dying from infection and trauma, and that was it. Um, with the advent of Medicine 2.0 and those things I just described, we essentially doubled human lifespan. And the good news is we did away with mostly fast death, and then it was supplanted with mostly slow death. So then it became the case that we now die of these chronic diseases. And this is where Medicine 2.0 has largely come up short, because the playbook of Medicine 2.0, which is act when the patient is sick, doesn't seem to work as well when you're treating diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, heart disease. And so what I am arguing is that we need to progress to the next phase, which is Medicine 3.0. Medicine 3.0 is much earlier in its prevention, uh, and it has to be much more personalized be based on the nature of the tools used in Medicine 2.0, which is basically the randomized control trial, which takes very heterogeneous data and then averages it out through the purpose of the experiment. And the problem is none of us are really the exact average. So you have to be able to tease out and go from what is called evidence-based medicine to evidence-informed medicine. So there are many things that factor into this. It's acting earlier, it's risk adjusting, so understanding the risk of not doing something versus doing something, and and then personalizing this medicine. Yeah, and taking, if we take, if we do our part in that deal, which is personal responsibility, obviously that's part of Medicine 3.0. It's, it's, there's a lot of teaching of habits and, and exercise and intention in there, but also, the, the massive side effect of this is we have a happier time. <laughs> so not only do we get ill less and, you know, these chronic illnesses, okay, you live longer, but it's such a heavy existence. You know, is it almost worth it? Yeah, one of the hallmarks of Medicine 3.0, I'm glad you brought that up, is there is much more of a focus on health span than lifespan. Um, I'll give you an analogy. Uh, if, you're, if you're driving a race car, one of the hardest things you have to learn when you're starting is you can't be looking right in front of the car. You have to be looking out of the corner. Now, again, I take it for granted today because I've been doing it for so long, but I really remember when I started how counterintuitive it was that when I'm driving into a corner, I'm looking at, I have to look at the exit and not look at the apex. And in many ways, I think you have to have this trust that if you put your eyes in the right place, you're gonna get there correctly. Similarly, when you focus on health span, when you focus on preserving cognitive function, when you focus on maximizing physical function throughout your aging process into that marginal decade, you actually get the lifespan benefits as well. But Medicine 2.0 is relentlessly focused on extending life, and what it ends up doing is extending sick life yeah, totally. instead of maximizing healthy life. I have some friends who are older than you and I, and um, they spend a lot of their resources, their means, um, you know, trying to live longer, but they spend most of their time in Harley Street. So, uh, you know, and so they, they, they're trying to extend their lives so they can spend more time in Harley Street. <laughs> and you can't say it because it's disrespectful, but you just, it's, you know, you see them and you're screaming, oh, God, it's me. What is, what's the game here? It's the, it's the game you were playing for a while, I suppose. Yeah. Something else you said a moment ago, I think is worth kind of reiterating. And it is that with, there are these other tools that Medicine 3.0 is able to adopt that medicine 2.0 doesn't really. So when I trained in medicine, 
I, I certainly trained at the best institutions, so there was nothing that I wasn't learning. But I wasn't learning anything about exercise, nutrition, sleep, or emotional health. So we learned a lot about pharmacology. We learned a lot about procedures. So, so Medicine 2.0's toolkit is basically intervention and medication. And it's exogenous. Yes. And those things are valuable. I do not want to suggest Medicine 2.0, you know, hasn't done a lot and will continue to do a lot. And I'm very happy that we have it. But 80% of the tools that are available, those other four things, we didn't learn about them. Mm. And the doctors today who know about them, and there are many who do, had to basically teach themselves on the outside of their medical training. Yeah. And... I think what we really want to do is get to a point where when a doctor goes to medical school, they're exposed in equal amounts to those four things. Uh, sorry, the four things in addition to obviously what you do in medicine 2.0, because that's really how you make a difference in yeah. terms of preventing and delaying the onset. And of having a great disease. time and becoming stronger and having a better base. What's the pyramid you talk about? Yeah, well, I talk about, let's see, there's several I do. Let me think, which one are you the referring to? The pyramid is about, the, about, about your base level fitness and your VO2 oh, max. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, from a fitness perspective, yeah, the base is your aerobic uh, efficiency. Yeah. I talk about zone two efficiency, yeah. your all-day pace. Yeah. And then the peak is your VO2 max or your peak aerobic fitness. Yeah. And yeah, so, so cardiorespiratory fitness would then be you know, sort of an analogy would be the maximum surface area of but that. But there are triangle. many pyramids for wellness, aren't yeah. there? And it's all about big, it's the big, unexciting, chronic, but chronic from a, as opposed to you know, chronic fitness, if you like, point of view. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the fun peaks, yeah. if you like. There's the hairpin bends, there's the chicanes to keep the racing metaphor. Like you yeah, smile yeah, yeah, every yeah, time yeah. I mention racing, you yeah, smile, yeah, it's so cool. And also you have these fun tests. Give us some fun tests. And the, the jumping forward with two feet together. What do you call that? A broad jump. The broad jump. Tell us why that's important. I think it's a great test because, you know, there are well, two types all, of strength. For people yeah, who don't yeah. know. So, well, let's start. There, there are two types of strength when you think of a muscle. Yeah. So a muscle has to be strong in the shortening phase. So mm -hmm. if everybody can kind of picture doing a bicep curl. Yeah. When you're curling that weight up that bicep is getting shorter. Yeah. The, the technical word for that is concentric strength. When you are putting the weight down, yeah. the muscle is getting longer. It still has to be strong, because yeah. if it's not, you would just drop it and hurt your arm. Yeah. So you have to be able to lower it. The lowering phase is called eccentric. Right. So you have concentric strength when a muscle is shortening, uh -huh. eccentric when it's lengthening. The Concentric strength is the explosive strength. It's the acceleration. The eccentric strength is the deceleration or the brakes. So a very dramatic way to test both of those, once you're fit enough, once you're warmed up enough, you don't jump out of bed and do this, and you don't do this if you haven't exercised before, but it's something I very much enjoy doing, is what's called a broad jump, where you stand and jump forward as far as you can and you have to stick the landing and stop. And one of the things we like to be able to see is can our patients broad jump at least their height? Lying down. Yes. So yeah. if your height is exactly, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so if you're some if you're, people can jump that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're one point eight meters tall, we would like to know that you could jump one point eight meters forward in that fashion. And again, the 
amount of concentric strength required to initiate that explosion is high and the amount of eccentric strength required to stop you is high. And that's really important because we were talking before, before you came in. Uh, so you need more power to get up the stairs, but you need more e eccentric strength to stop yourself falling down the stairs. And that's how most people get hurt, which seems like the easy way down the stairs, but it's the most dangerous way down the stairs. A hundred percent. Yeah. Things most, like that. Most people, especially as they age, injure themselves walking off the curb, down the stairs, down the hill. Yeah. Because they, you lose that eccentric strength, your brakes go away. Yeah, and this is all in the book. We're just, we are not even skimming this. We're not even skimming the skimming of the surface today. And all that's so important because if you have a fall when you get older and then you have a serious illness, then the the, the risk, the percentage or the, the likelihood of you um, almost die, dying, in fact, from that illness is goes exponentially up, ridiculously high yeah, if you have a fall. It's, um, if you're over the age of 65 and you have a fall that results in you breaking your hip, or your femur, that long bone in your upper yep. leg, there's about a 15 to 30% chance that you will die within a year. How crazy is that? Okay, this is all in the book. Are there fun tests that we could do today? Are there fun checks on us? Boy, what would you like to do? Do you have a bar that we could hang off? Yeah, so we, got, we, we hang here all the time. We're not supposed to, and they tell me not to, but I do. So what are we doing here? <laughs> A dead hang. A dead hang is just hanging there, and we <laughs> we would have a standard for a forty man, a forty year old man that he would be able to hang for two minutes, and a woman for ninety seconds. Well, I'm fifty seven, so so we would discount that a little okay, bit. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> I'll, I'll take out all the discounts I can get. Um, so we have loads of texts coming in. One straight away. Um, I know I know the answer to this. But it's better from the horse's mouth. Karen in Portland says, great show. Please can you ask Peter if it's too late for a 59-year-old woman to start exercising to make a real difference? You say, if you can breathe, you can improve. That's your philosophy. Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. And also that I'll tell you, my mother didn't start exercising, didn't start really exercising and certainly had never touched a weight until she was in her mid-60s. And, you know, finally I got through to her and said, you know, mom, this is so important. Um, you never had much muscle to begin with, but the little bit you had, you're losing. And I explained to her everything we've talked about. And, you know, it's amazing how much better she feels five years, six years after starting to lift weights. And I actually had her do it with machines. You know, that's the other thing. I think it can be very intimidating to someone who's 59, who's never exercised and, uh, you want to start with something that's very easy. You don't have to be deadlifting and doing a clean and jerk or something crazy like that. You you go into a gym where they have very simple machines where the range of motion is completely controlled and you could do three times 30 minutes a week. It doesn't matter. And, and by the way, you don't have to hurt. That's the other thing. It, it's not like you have to do this to the point where you're tearing muscle fibers such that you're in so much pain. Um, you you want to start doing it in a way that makes it enjoyable enough that you want to come back and do it again. We talked about strength training, which I've never done. So 10 weeks ago, it was the end of the London Marathon. I did my ankle in um, and I couldn't uh, train, run. And so uh, my brilliant physio said, you need to be stronger anyway. This is a chance to get stronger. So I started cycling and I started doing weights for the first time in 30 or 40 years. Mm. And I can't, I ran for the first time today because you were coming in 10 weeks after not running. So the run, it was a completely different run because I've got more strength and more power in my legs. And I said, 
to Vass and to Rachel, it's funny because you you tend to want to lift weights when you least need to mm. in your twenties and thirties, and you tend not to want to when you most need to. Uh, but what's interesting about what you say is between the age of like ten and nineteen, or up to about twenty-ish, you can improve your bone density. That's right. Which is why we need to get our kids into strength and fitness. Just give us thirty seconds on that, Peter. Yeah, bone density is not a sexy topic. People don't really seem to pay attention to it until it matters too late. But um, we all have. Have sort of a genetic potential just like everyone has a genetic potential for height or muscle mass but you you reach that genetic potential pretty early in life typically by about your early to mid 20s this is true for men and women and so what you want to do is make sure you hit that genetic potential that's your ceiling because inevitably it will decline and um, the best way to do this is is compression, right? It's it's heavy strength training uh, because that's what bones respond to. Bones respond to the forces that are placed on them. And that's why the hormone estrogen is important for both men and women, as not just as they're going through puberty, but later on in life. And so estrogen translates the mechanical signal of bone compression into the chemical signal that builds the bones. Right. So it's super important that kids are playing sports it's i think very important that kids are doing strength training that's counterintuitive a lot of people think what is a what does a 15 year old need to be doing strength training for if all they're doing is playing soccer sorry football uh, <laughs> it's okay <laughs> you're forgiven you're canadian and american so uh but it's very important for everybody to be doing yeah, strength so training. so weights you know pre-20 and post-40 absolutely in between but more the more where you least expect it perhaps is a good rule of thumb sure all right. Um, if you're going to buy one piece of equipment, say you got 20 quid or $30 or whatever, would it be a kettlebell? Um, I would say maybe one of those dumbbells that allows you to change multiple weights on it. Have you seen those yep. ones? Yeah. Half, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would say like maybe a box to step up onto. And you know, you're them. a big fan of stepping, aren't you? For big so many reasons. This is so cool. Yeah. So another, another thing you can do is that you, you're a big fan of stepping and you're a big fan of the wall sit as well. Yeah. Give us those two quickly. Well, the step up, I think, is fantastic because it's it's a classic part of what's called the hip hinge. So yep. I, I write a lot about this hip hinging and why this is one of the most fundamental, important movements that every human needs to do. Um, so if you think about it as a runner, right, again, so, so you might not think, well, why does a runner need to be strong? But every time you take a step, you're hitting the ground as hard as possible. The ground is hitting you, and that's what's propelling you forward. So contrary to popular belief, the difference between the fastest runner and the slowest runner, once you normalize for running economy, comes down to power to weight ratio from the force of the strike on the ground. So when you're stepping up onto a box, that is a very concentric movement. That's your strength phase, that's your power phase. What I like to do just as much is do a three second descent off the box as the eccentric strength. Much slower than you might think. Much slower. Three seconds off a box when you're carrying weight takes forever. Yeah. If it's a you know a sixteen inch, you know, a sixteen to eighteen inch box, I would use. So um, what's nice about this is when you're starting out, you don't need to use any weight. The box itself provides enough resistance for you. And as you progress and as your form progresses, and by the way, I think in the book we even link to uh, videos on my website where I go through, I show people how to do it. Because I think it's hard to learn this just from reading. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you actually have to see what it looks like when you do it. Um, but it's a perfect lower body exercise and it requires very little equipment. 
Peter, we are out of time. We've never done this before. We've never had a, that long a conversation on the show before. Thank you so much for coming in. This book is available in audio and it's big in audio and people love it in audio. And you can listen to audio whilst doing things that are better for you, better for you that you will get from the book, Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity. Peter's podcast is off the chain. It's called The Drive. He's also regularly appears on Rich Roll's podcast and Andrew Huberman's podcast and Tim Ferriss's podcast and loads of other great podcasts. And it's a good tribe to hang with. Let me tell you, it will, you will... You will thank your lucky stars that you get into this tribe. Um, you finished the book off by saying you used to be about doing and now you're much more about being. Just leave us with 30 seconds of that Peter Atiyah. Well, I mean, I, I look, I, I think that um, I fall short of that sometimes, truthfully. I think uh, anybody who says that they're, you know, fully recovered uh, never is. But I definitely spend much more time enjoying what's happening at the moment. Uh, and, and worrying less about what I need to be doing tomorrow. Apart from today, because tomorrow you're going to the Festival of Speed, which you really like. <laughs> Peter, thanks for coming in. Thank you so thanks much for, for having me. Thanks for interrupting your family on the day. Let's hear it for Peter and Tia here. Control room cheer. Do we have one? Yes, we do. <laughs> Craving some great 80s music. Play Virgin Radio 80s Plus. On DAB Digital Radio, on the app, on your smart speaker, and at virginradio80splus.co.uk. I got my mind Love Chris Evans. Woo! Love the 80s. the 80s. Virgin Radio. 80s Plus. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.